Today's episode may not be suitable for children under 12. Parental discretion is advised. Welcome to the Story King podcast, where great stories are read, discussed, and given their due honor. I'm your host, John Carlo, and today's story is by the great Franz Kafka. Franz Kafka was a German-speaking Ashkenazi Jew from Prague. He lived from 1883 to 1924. He was only 40 when he died. His most famous novella, The Metamorphosis, is about a protagonist named Gregor Samsa who wakes up one morning and discovers he's been transformed into a large cockroach of some sort. You may have heard the term Kafkaesque, which is used to describe stories that employ similar magical realism techniques that Kafka used. I'm a big fan of his, so I wanted to read a couple of his shorter, lesser-known works. The first story we're reading today is called A Country Doctor, and the second is called The Bucket Rider. So here's A Country Doctor by Franz Kafka. I was in great perplexity. I had to start on an urgent journey. A seriously ill patient was waiting for me in a village ten miles off. A thick blizzard of snow filled all the wide spaces between him and me. I had a gig, a light gig with big wheels, exactly right for our country roads, muffled in furs, my bag of instruments in my hand. I was in the courtyard, all ready for the journey. But there was no horse to be had, no horse. My own horse had died in the night, worn out by the fatigues of this icy winter. My servant girl was now running around the village trying to borrow a horse, but it was hopeless, I knew it, and I stood there forlornly, with the snow gathering more and more thickly upon me, more and more unable to move. In the gateway the girl appeared, alone, and waved the lantern. Of course, who would lend a horse at this time for such a journey? I strode through the courtyard once more. I could see no way out. In my confused distress, I kicked at the dilapidated door of the year-long, uninhabited pigsty. It flew open and flapped to and fro on its hinges. A steam and smell as of horses came out from it. A dim stable lantern was swinging inside from a rope. A man, crouching on his hams in that low space, showed an open, blue-eyed face. Shall I yoke up, he asked, crawling out on all fours. I did not know what to say and merely stooped down to see what else was in the sty. The servant girl was standing beside me. You never know what you're going to find in your own house, she said, and we both laughed. Hey there, brother, hey there, sister, called the groom, and two horses, enormous creatures with powerful flanks, one after the other, their legs tucked close to their bodies, each well-shaped head lowered like a camel's, by sheer strength of buttocking, squeezed out through the door hole, which they filled entirely, but at once they were standing up, their legs long and their bodies steaming thickly. Give him a hand, I said, and the willing girl hurried to help the groom with the harnessing. Yet hardly was she beside him when the groom clipped hold of her and pushed his face against hers. She screamed and fled back to me. On her cheek stood out and read the marks of two rows of teeth. You brute! I yelled in fury. Do you want a whipping? But in the same moment reflected that the man was a stranger, that I did not know where he came from, and that of his own free will he was helping me out when everyone else had failed me. As if he knew my thoughts, he took no offense at my threat, but still busied with the horses, only turned around once toward me. Get in, he said then, and indeed everything was ready, a magnificent pair of horses, I observed, such as I had never sat behind, and I climbed in happily. But I'll drive, you don't know the way, I said. Of course, said he, I'm not coming with you anyway, I'm staying with Rose. No, shrieked Rose, fleeing into the house with a justified presentiment that her fate was inescapable. 
I heard the door chain rattle as she put it up. I heard the key turn in the lock. I could see, moreover, how she put out the lights in the entrance hall and further flight all through the rooms to keep herself from being discovered. You're coming with me, I said to the groom, or I won't go. Urgent as my journey is, I'm not thinking of paying for it by handing the girl over to you. Gee up, he said, clapped his hands. The gig whirled off like a log and a freshet. I could just hear the door of my house splitting and bursting as the groom charged at it, and then I was deafened and blinded by a storm rush that steadily buffeted all my senses. But this only for a moment, since as if my patient's farmyard had opened out just before my courtyard gate, I was already there. The horses had come quietly to a standstill. The blizzard had stopped, moonlight all around. My patient's parents hurried out of the house, his sister behind them. I was almost lifted out of the gig. From their confused ejaculations, I gathered not a word. In the sick room, the air was almost unbreathable. The neglected stove was smoking. I wanted to push open a window, but first I had to look at my patient. Gaunt, without any fever, not cold, not warm, with vacant eyes, without a shirt, the youngster heaved himself up from under the feather bedding, threw his arms around my neck and whispered in my ear, Doctor, let me die. I glanced around the room. No one had heard it. The parents were leaning forward in silence, waiting for my verdict. The sister had set a chair for my handbag. I opened the bag and hunted among my instruments. The boy kept clutching at me from his bed to remind me of his entreaty. I picked up a pair of tweezers, examined them in the candlelight, and laid them down again. Yes, I thought blasphemously. In cases like this, the gods are helpful. Send the missing horse, add to it a second because of the urgency, and to crown everything, bestow even a groom. And only now did I remember Rose again. What was I to do? How could I rescue her? How could I pull her away from under that groom at ten miles distance with a team of horses I couldn't control? These horses now, they had somehow slipped the reins loose, pushed the windows open from outside. I did not know how. Each of them had stuck a head in at a window and quite unmoved by the startled cries of the family, stood eyeing the patient. Better go back at once, I thought, as if the horses were summoning me to the return journey. Yet I permitted the patient's sister, who fancied that I was dazed by the heat, to take my fur coat from me. A glass of rum was poured out for me. The old man clapped me on the shoulder, a familiarity justified by this offer of his treasure. I shook my head in the narrow confines of the old man's thoughts I felt ill. That was my only reason for refusing the drink. The mother stood by the bedside and cajoled me toward it. I yielded, and while one of the horses whinnied loudly to the ceiling, laid my head to the boy's breast, which shivered under my wet beard. I confirmed what I already knew. The boy was quite sound, something a little wrong with his circulation, saturated with coffee by his solicitous mother, but sound and best turned out of bed with one shove. I am no world reformer, and so I let him lie. I was the district doctor and did my duty to the uttermost, to the point where it became almost too much. I was badly paid and yet generous and helpful to the poor. I had still to see that Rose was all right. And then the boy might have his way and I wanted to die too. What was I doing there in that endless winter? My horse was dead and not a single person in the village would lend me another. I had to get my team out of the pigsty. If they hadn't chanced to be horses, I should have had to travel with swine. That was how it was, and I nodded to the family. They knew nothing about it, and had they known, would not have believed it. To write prescriptions is easy, but to come to an understanding with people is hard. Well, this should be the end of my visit. I had once more been called out needlessly. I was used to that. The whole district made my life a torment with my night bell. 
but that I should have to sacrifice Rose this time as well, the pretty girl who had lived in my house for years, almost without my noticing her, that sacrifice was too much to ask, and I had somehow to get it reasoned out in my head with the help of what craft I could muster in order not to let fly at this family, which with the best will in the world could not restore Rose to me. But as I shut my bag and put an arm out for my fur coat, the family meanwhile standing together, the father sniffing at the glass of rum in his hand, the mother apparently disappointed in me. Why, what do people expect? Biting her lips with tears in her eyes, the sister fluttering a blood-soaked towel, I was somehow ready to admit, conditionally, that the boy might be ill after all. I went toward him. He welcomed me, smiling, as if I were bringing him the most nourishing invalid broth. Ah, now both horses were whinnying together. The noise, I suppose, was ordained by heaven to assist my examination of the patient, and this time I discovered that the boy was indeed ill. In his right side, near the hip, was an open wound as big as the palm of my hand, rose red, in many variations of shade, dark in the hollows, lighter at the edges, softly granulated with irregular clots of blood, open as a surface mine to the daylight. That was how it looked from a distance, but on a closer inspection there was another complication. I could not help a low whistle of surprise. Worms, as thick and as long as my little finger, themselves rose-red and blood-spotted as well, were wriggling from their fastness in the interior of the wound toward the light, with small white heads and many little legs. Poor boy, you were past helping. I had discovered your great wound. This blossom in your side was destroying you. The family was pleased. They saw me busying myself. The sister told the mother, the mother, the father. The father told several guests who were coming in through the moonlight at the open door, walking in tiptoe, keeping their balance with outstretched arms. Will you save me? whispered the boy with a sob, quite blinded by the life within his wound. That is what people are like in my district, always expecting the impossible from the doctor. They have lost their ancient beliefs. The parson sits at home and unravels his vestments, one after another, but the doctor is supposed to be omnipotent with his merciful surgeon's hand. Well, as it pleases them, I have not thrust my services on them. If they misuse me for sacred ends, I let that happen to me too. What better do I want, old country doctor that I am, bereft of my servant girl? And so they came, the family and the village elders, and stripped my clothes off me. A school choir with the teacher at the head of it stood before the house and sang these words to an utterly simple tune. Strip his clothes off, then he'll heal us. If he doesn't, kill him dead. Only a doctor, only a doctor. Then my clothes were off, and I looked at the people quietly. My fingers in my beard, and my head cocked to one side, I was altogether composed and equal to the situation, and remained so, although it was no help to me, since they now took me by the head and feet and carried me to the bed. They laid me down in it next to the wall, on the side of the wound. Then they all left the room. The door was shut. The singing stopped. Clouds covered the moon. The bedding was warm around me. The horses' heads in the open windows wavered like shadows. Do you know, said a voice in my ear, I have very little confidence in you. Why, you were only blown here. You didn't come on your own feet. Instead of helping me, you're cramping me on my deathbed. What I'd like best is to scratch your eyes out. Right, I said. It is a shame, and yet I am a doctor. What am I to do? Believe me, it is not too easy for me, either. Am I supposed to be content with this apology? Oh, I must be. I can't help it. I always have to put up with these things. A fine wound is all I brought into the world. That was my sole endowment. My young friend, said I, your mistake is, you have not a wide enough view. I have been in all the sick rooms, far and wide, and I tell you, your wound is not so bad. Done in a tight corner with two strokes of the axe. 
Many a one proffers his side and can hardly hear the axe in the forest, far less that it is coming nearer to him. Is that really so, or are you deluding me in my fever? It is really so. Take the word of honor of an official doctor. And he took it and lay still. But now it was time for me to think of escaping. The horses were still standing faithfully in their places. My clothes, my fur coat, my bag were quickly collected. I didn't want to waste time dressing. If the horses raced home as they had come, I should only be springing, as it were, out of this bed into my own. Obediently, a horse backed away from the window. I threw my bundle into the gig. The fur coat missed its mark and was caught on a hook only by the sleeve. Good enough. I swung myself onto the horse, with the reins loosely trailing, one horse barely fastened to the other, the gig swaying behind, my fur coat last of all in the snow. Gee up, I said, but there was no galloping. Slowly, like old men, we crawled through the snowy wastes, a long time echoed behind us, the new but faulty song of the children. Oh, be joyful, all you patients, the doctors laid in bed beside you. Never shall I reach home at this rate. My flourishing practice is done for. My successor is robbing me, but in vain, for he cannot take my place. In my house, the disgusting groom is raging. Rose is his victim. I do not want to think about it any more. Naked, exposed to the frost of this most unhappy of ages, with an earthly vehicle, unearthly horses, old man that I am, I wander astray. My fur coat is hanging from the back of the gig, but I cannot reach it, and none of my limber pack of patience lifts a finger. Betrayed, betrayed, a false alarm on the night bell once answered. It cannot be made good, not ever. So that was a country doctor, and now here is the bucket rider. Coal all spent, the bucket empty, the shovel useless, the stove breathing out cold, the room freezing, the trees outside the window rigid, covered with rime, the sky a silver shield against anyone who looks for help from it. I must have coal, I cannot freeze to death. Behind me is the pitiless stove, before me the pitiless sky, so I must ride out between them, and on my journey seek aid from the coal dealer. But he has already grown deaf to ordinary appeals. I must prove irrefutably to him that I have not a single grain of coal left, and that he means to me the very sun in the firmament. I must approach like a beggar, who with the death rattle already in his throat, insists on dying on the doorstep, and to whom the cook accordingly decides to give the dregs of the coffee pot, just so must the coal dealer, filled with rage, but acknowledging the command, Thou shalt not kill, fling a shovel full of coal into my bucket. My mode of arrival must decide the matter, so I ride off on the bucket, seated on the bucket, my hands on the handle, the simplest kind of bridle. I propel myself with difficulty down the stairs, but once downstairs, my bucket ascends superbly. Camels humbly squatting on the ground do not rise with more dignity, shaking themselves under the sticks of their drivers. Through the hard frozen streets we go at a regular canter. Often I am upraised as high as the first story of a house. Never do I sink as low as the house doors, and at last I float at an extraordinary height above the vaulted cellar of the dealer, whom I see far below crouching over his table, where he is writing. He has opened the door to let out the excessive heat. Coal dealer, I cry in a voice burned hollow by the frost and muffled in the cloud made by my breath. Please, coal dealer, give me a little coal. My bucket is so light that I can ride on it. Be kind. When I can, I'll pay you. The dealer puts his hand to his ear. Do I hear right? He throws the question over his shoulder to his wife. Do I hear right? A customer. I hear nothing, says his wife, breathing in and out peacefully while she knits on, her back pleasantly warmed by the heat. Oh, yes, you must hear, I cry. It's me, an old customer, faithful and true, only without means at the moment. 
Wife, says the dealer, it's someone. It must be. My ears can't have deceived me so much as that. It must be an old, a very old customer that can move me so deeply. What ails you, man, says his wife, ceasing from her work for a moment and pressing her knitting to her bosom. It's nobody. The street is empty. All our customers are provided for. We could close down the shop for several days and take a rest. But I'm sitting up here on the bucket, I cry, and numb, frozen tears dim my eyes. Please look up here. Just once, you'll see me directly. I beg you, just a shovelful, and if you give me more, it'll make me so happy that I won't know what to do. All the other customers are provided for. Oh, if I could only hear the coal clattering into the bucket. I'm coming, says the coal dealer, and on his short legs he makes to climb the steps of the cellar. But his wife is already beside him, holds him back by the arm and says, You stay here. Seeing you persist in your fancies, I'll go myself. Think of the bad fit of coughing you had during the night. But for a piece of business, even if it's one you've only fancied in your head, you're prepared to forget your wife and child and sacrifice your lungs. I'll go. Then be sure to tell him all the kinds of coal we have in stock. I'll shout out the prices after you. Right, says his wife, climbing up to the street. Naturally, she sees me at once. For all coal dealer, I cry. My humblest greetings. Just one shovel full of coal here in my bucket. I'll call at home myself. One shovel full of the worst you have. I'll pay you in full for it, of course, but not just now, not just now. What a knell-like sound the words not just now have, and how bewilderingly they mingle with the evening chimes that fall from the church steeple nearby. Well, what does he want, shouts the dealer. Nothing, his wife shouts back. There's nothing here. I see nothing. I hear nothing. Only six striking, and now we must shut up the shop. The cold is terrible. Tomorrow we'll likely have lots to do again. She says nothing and hears nothing, but all the same, she loosens her apron strings and waves her apron to waft me away. She succeeds, unluckily. My bucket has all the virtues of a good steed except powers of resistance, which it has not. It is too light. A woman's apron can make it fly through the air. You bad woman, I shout back, while she, turning into the shop, half contemptuous, half reassured, flourishes her fist in the air. You bad woman, I begged you for a shovel full of the worst coal, and you would not give it me. And with that, I ascend into the regions of the ice mountains, and I'm lost forever. So these are not the easiest stories to interpret, I have to admit. In fact, when you Google these stories, you'll get words like absurdity, and the fact that they tend to leave the reader with perhaps more questions than answers. But they do show not only the genius of Franz Kafka, but also the scope in which one can tell a short story. I'm sure I'll be reading more from him in the future. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Franz Kafka's work can, of course, be found wherever books are sold or borrowed. Also, if you yourself have written a story you'd like me to read on the show, please email it to storykingpodcast at gmail.com. If I like it, I just might read it. Try to keep it between one to 3,000 words, though. I do enjoy speculative fiction if you want to win me over, but I won't tell you what to write. A good story is a good story, no matter the genre. Again, that's storykingpodcast at gmail.com. And if you'd like to be a part of what we're doing on The Story King, please consider becoming a patron. You can visit my page at www.patreon.com forward slash thestoryking. The link will be in the show notes. If you're not familiar with Patreon, it's a very practical and tangible way to support your favorite content creators so they have the resources they need to continue producing more great content. I have three monthly subscription tiers you can choose from on Patreon, a $5, $10, and $20 option. Any of those will give you immediate access to the Story King Podcast exclusive edition. You get an autographed copy of every book I release at the $10 tier. And with the $20 option, you get all of the above, but fellow writers also get to promote their own work on The Story King and will even be interviewed on the show. 
Please consider becoming a Story King patron and get access to all the exclusive content. You can check out the details of those subscription tiers on my page. Again, that's patreon.com forward slash the Story King. Please follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. The links are in the show notes. And thank you for listening to the Story King podcast, where great stories are read, discussed, and given their due honor. Please join us next time. Until then.